0: This is a CBC Podcast.
1: As we prepare to host COP28 in November, I ask myself, can the world come together to meet the urgency of this moment? Can the world cut emissions in half in the next seven years? And my answer is yes.
0: Sultan Ahmed Al-Jaber is the head of the United Arab Emirates National Oil Company. He's also leading the COP28 climate negotiations that get underway in Dubai this week. And his leadership and the involvement of the energy sector in those talks have many environmentalists worried about a weak agreement even before the talks begin. Joining me now to discuss this and the role of the energy sector in addressing climate change is Fateh Birl. He is executive director of the International Energy Agency. This is the intergovernmental group that was formed to help ensure energy security after the oil price shocks of the 1970s. We've reached him at the International Energy Agency's headquarters in Paris. Fateh Birl, good morning. Good afternoon from Paris. Thank you for being here. You have said that COP28 in Dubai is going to be a moment of truth for the energy industry. What did you mean by that? So energy
1: industry is responsible about 80% of global emissions causing climate change. So if we want to avoid the devastating impacts of climate change, we have to reduce the emissions coming from the energy sector. And this COP taking place in the Middle East, a major energy producing and exporting region of the world, and we will see whether or not the energy industry will be partners with the governments, uh, with the others, to put the world on track to reach our climate targets, or they will continue to increase their production which leads to rather high temperature increases and threatens the fragile equilibrium of our planet. Uh, we will see what they are going to do.
0: We learned that the United Arab Emirates is planning to use its role as the host of these climate talks as an opportunity to strike oil and gas deals. The BBC got leaked documents showing that Sultan al Jaber uh, wants to use this as an opportunity to sign up other countries to help sell oil and gas. What do you make of that?
1: So I don't know much about the details of this report, but what I can tell you is something much more concrete. When you talk with the oil and gas leaders, with the companies, a big chunk of their statements uh, are based on how much they push clean energy options. It is solar, it is wind, it is hydrogen, and so on. But when we look at the data, we find out at the IEA that only 2.5% of their capital expenditure, their investment, go to clean energy, and 97.5% go to their traditional operations. So there's a big contradiction between how much is the share of clean energy in their statements, in their speeches, in their advertisement, vis-a-vis the share of the clean energy in their investments. So this is a major issue for me.
0: Are you not concerned, though, that... This year's climate talks, you may not know the specific details, but that this year's climate talks are being led by an oil executive? I think this may well be an an opportunity to
1: change the destiny of a region, which is almost exclusively relying on fossil fuels and the revenues uh, from that. Because if they are not able to diversify their economies, I am afraid uh, there will be very difficult days for them to come because we believe, if our numbers show, that the clean energy transitions are happening and happening fast, uh, faster than many people realize. And as such, the global oil and gas consumption will peak before the end of this decade. So they have to rather prepare themselves for the future and diversify their economies. And I hope that this COP28 will be a turning point for their economic history.
0: What gives you that evidence to to suggest that, that it's going to peak? Because we've seen at the World Petroleum Congress in Calgary this year, The heads of Exxon and Aramco, the Saudi national oil company, said they think demand is going to increase through 2030. We've seen Mm. the demand for fossil fuel reaching record levels in 2022. Mm. So why do you think that it's going in the other direction? Unfortunately, I missed the World
1: Petroleum Congress this year. But what I can tell you that there are two reasons in terms of oil why we think it will peak before 2030. One is the following, China. China was by far the largest driver of global oil consumption growth in the last 10 years. More than two-thirds of the global oil consumption growth came from China only. And last 10 years, Chinese economy was flourishing, growing 6% per year. And when we look at the next years to come, Chinese economy will slow down. And its structure will change from an energy-intensive economy to a softer economy. So slowing down economy will require less oil. This is one reason the major driver of oil demand will be much weaker. The second one is the electrification of the transportation sector. So I can tell you, only three years ago, one out of 25 cars sold in the world was an electric car three years ago, one out of 25. And this year, one out of five cars sold in the world is electric car. And in 2030, which is tomorrow, with the much modest expectations, every second car sold will be electric car. So electrification of transportation sector is another driver that we expect. The oil demand will peak. And to be honest with you, we are not the only one. We are not only the clever ones in the world. Most of the Oil companies' own projections also show that before 2030, we will see a peak. So therefore, those colleagues who believe that the oil demand will increase infinitely, it might be A, they are wrong analytically, and B, they are betting on the climate crisis happening.
0: You've said in, in the face of those calculations that there will be no new need for oil and gas projects and that the fossil fuel industry is going to embrace production cuts. How big do you think those production cuts should be?
1: I think what we say is that the current fields around the world, the oil fields, will be more than enough to meet the demand coming from oil if the world goes in the direction of 1.5 degrees uh, Celsius, what the scientists tell us. So this is the, if we see the demand going down, which it should go if we want a reasonable planet in the next years to come. Therefore, we would need this demand could be met with the existing fields, and we don't need to explore new fields and operate new fields. So this is the point where we come
0: from. From those fields that exist, though, should production be slowed? Should less oil come out of those those wells that are already drilled?
1: I think it will depend on how fast the oil demand will decline. If we have the current oil demand trajectory, we are okay with the existing fields coming as they are producing now. But if the decline of the oil demand is much steeper, then we may well see some of the production fields can be idle. And here we will look at the, or the markets will look at the
0: cleanest oil and the cheapest uh, oil where, the it is, uh, where it is produced. The chief executive officer of the Canadian Association of Petroleum Producers, Lisa Bolton, said, we have proven over the last decade that we can meaningfully reduce greenhouse gas emissions while increasing production at the same time. What do you make of that?
1: so it depends on what you understand from reaching our climate course everybody might have a different goal but for me if the climate goal is the reaching the 1.5 degrees celsius target which is embedded in the Paris agreement here, which the scientists tell us, if we want to have a, a planet in the future which is more or less similar today with the same level of the extreme weather events, if we don't want to see much more frequent extreme weather events or much intense extreme weather events, if it is our climate goal, we cannot continue to produce oil, gas, and coal at the current pace. Otherwise, we will never reach our climate goals, and which means that we should be ready to have a planet uh, experiencing much frequent uh, wildfires, much intense wildfires, floods, drought, and everything else.
0: Do you think that people are willing to change their lifestyles so that they would use less oil and gas. One of the things from the IEA's net zero by 2050 roadmap said that people need to change their behavior, particularly in advanced economies, replacing car trips with walking, cycling or public transit, yeah. forgoing long haul flights, for example. Yeah. Do you think that, that that people around the world are willing to make those changes in their lifestyles?
1: So I think, especially in advanced economies, there is a need of the behavioral change of the consumers. Some of them can happen on a voluntary basis, but I believe that there is a role for governments to make the more sustainable choices economically more attractive to make them more comfortable. It should be the public transportation, for example, or different much sustainable heating systems. Governments need to help the people to change their behavior to go for more sustainable, cleaner choices of energy consumption. For example, flying, though, do you think the people are going to take fewer flights? I think it may be good, for example, to have especially short- and medium-term flights replaced by the trends, what Europe and some other countries are uh, pushing, or in terms of uh, having much uh, more international travel to uh, do some of the work, through uh, video meetings and other to replace them. And I think there is already a move in that direction.
0: Mm. Hello, I'm Jess Milton. I spoke recently with Danielle Smith. She's the premier of the province of Alberta. It has a substantial oil and gas sector. And she expressed real doubts that renewables like wind and solar are going to be able to provide sufficient, reliable power in her province anytime soon. Have a listen to what she said. I have to be able to build a grid knowing that wind and solar are intermittent. And when we back them up, we back them up with natural gas. Because when the wind doesn't blow and the sun doesn't shine, you still need to be able to provide baseload power. Through so batteries is, and things like that? Well, batteries, I mean, I mean battery technology is not there yet. I, I talked to somebody who was contemplating putting on a 200-megawatt uh, battery storage for his 200-megawatt plan, and it's $200 million, and he only gets one hour of storage. Um, when, when we have three weeks where we don't have uh, effective wind and solar, that's just not going to cut it. Fatih Bureau, what do you make of those concerns from the Premier of Alberta, Daniel Smith? I think
1: Mrs. Smith is uh, right by saying that the renewables, solar and wind, uh, are intermittent. Having said that, First of all, we should build our grids with solar, wind, hydropower, nuclear power. We should have stronger grids and the battery technology is coming. Of course, there can be some, for example, natural gas to have the equilibrium and the safety in the grids. But I can tell you, I am sorry to say, but if you look at this year of all the power plants built in the world... This world includes Alberta in the world, more than 80% of the new power plants are renewables, more than 80%. And a few percentage point uh, nuclear and uh, only close to 15% are fossil fuels. This shows what is the choice of the world is the next chapter of the electricity generation. So do you think she's out of step with the rest of the world? No, every every country, every region has a different uh, perspective and different framework conditions, but the direction of the world is very clear. It is the renewable energy, it is solar, wind, hydropower and others, and also I see that nuclear is also making a strong comeback in many
0: parts of the world. One of the things that happens when you make statements like that is that for example, the energy minister of Saudi Arabia says that you are straying too far into the realm of political advocacy with talk about a need for production cut or, or reduced investment, that that this is goes beyond your remit and that you're getting into political work. What do you say to that? So it is IEA's job to
1: make some uh, policy recommendations in terms of energy policies. And it is our job to push the clean energy transition. And it is our also a moral duty to make sure that the world uh, today, the population and the tomorrow's population have a planet which is healthy and sustainable and happy at the same time. And so that's your job to push those, those governments to try to get to that place. Exactly, and many of them do, some don't, but we are very happy that the many governments uh, take the IEA's recommendations seriously. We are, for the colleagues who do not know, for your, the people who are listening to this uh, program, we are a small organization of 400 people in, in Paris, but we are very happy that the, our recommendations are taken very seriously by companies, by governments, by the investors around the world.
0: One of the things that you will hear from those governments, but also those fossil fuel companies, is that they're putting many of their chips, uh, if they're betting, they're putting many of their chips in front of carbon capture and storage as a solution to deal with the emissions problem that comes from the extraction of fossil fuels. You've said that um, relying on carbon capture technology to continue with current oil, gas, and production trends, is pure fantasy if you think that you're going to make emission targets. Why did you use that phrase, pure fantasy? Mm -hmm.
1: So carbon capture and storage is an important technology, and it can, and hopefully it will play a very important role to bring the emissions down from, especially from the industrial sector, such as cement, such as the iron, steel, and others. But when the oil and gas producers say, on one hand, I will going to produce my oil and gas as it is in my my strategy, as business as usual, and at the same time, I am going to reach the climate targets, I think there is a problem here. The amount of carbon capture and storage you need to reduce the emissions from the business as usual, oil and gas trends, require huge amount of investment and efforts. Just to put in a context, this year is a good year for carbon capture and storage and the amount of investment for carbon capture and storage is about four billion four billion US dollars in order to realize what those oil and gas producers say the amount of investment going to carbon capture and storage annually should be four trillion Mm. means one thousand times more so it is to increase one thousand times more investment is uh, something very very Difficult, if not impossible. So it is the reason I say it is fantasy. Or uh, if we want to bring the fossil fuel
0: emissions down, we have to bring fossil fuels down. There is no way around it. You called on that industry to, in your words, hasten the transition to clean energy rather than impede that transition. What are you most concerned about? What have you seen from the industry that would lead you to to worry about? the impediments that it is involved in 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 trying to slow down that transition. Mm
1: -hmm. So I very much would like to see oil and gas industry to be partners with the other stakeholders who want to combat climate change. And in fact, if they would be partnering with the others, it would be an excellent news because they have a lot of experience in managing large-scale projects. They have skillful engineers. They have deep pockets. If they want to, if they would uh, embrace the clean energy, growing clean energy economy, this would be a big win because about 40% of the technologies we need to solve our climate crisis have affinity with the today's day-to-day work of the oil and gas companies such as offshore wind such as hydrogen such as biofuels and others so therefore it will be very good if the oil and gas companies would agree with the invitation of the IEA and the others to be partnering together to address our common problem of climate change. But it's
0: not just partnering. Do you see those companies throwing up roadblocks to slow down that transition? I think if they continue to ignore the climate
1: change risk and continue to do what they are doing now, I think this will definitely not make life easier for the others to reduce the emissions.
0: Do you think it's still possible to get to 1.5 degrees of warming? I think the,
1: the, the path to reach 1.5 is narrowing
0: by day. What, what, do, uh, what, are you, what are you most worried about? What do you see that is narrowing that path day by day? The lack of uh, appropriate climate action.
1: And if we are not able to get out of the COP28 with uh, good and convincing results, then our chances will diminish uh, considerably.
0: People might see what's happening in China, where something like 209 new coal power plants are either under construction or permitted in that country. India saying that it is going to uh, revive underground coal mining because it wants to boost production to meet its energy needs. People might see that and throw their hands up and say this idea of a 1.5 target is fantasy.
1: I think it is very difficult to reach, but it is not out of reach because you gave these examples but I should tell you that when you talk about China, China is by far the champion of clean energy uh, today. We talk about electric cars, more than 60% of electric cars today uh, manufactured in the world are coming from China. In terms of solar, in terms of wind uh, batteries, China is by far the leader and those uh, coal uh, plants might be built and if they are built they will be used with a low utilization rate, not because of the climate reasons, but because the solar is much cheaper than generating electricity from coal in China. Nuclear is very growing very strongly in in China. So therefore, despite the, of course, some coal coming from developing
0: countries, I believe the peak and the decline of coal is coming very soon. Let me just ask you a couple more questions before I let you go. One is, what is it that when, when you're doing this work, what is it that wakes you up at night? Um, anxious about the future.
1: I also lived through the uh, 2015 COP in Paris, and we have provided a lot of uh, support for that uh, successful outcome of Paris. If I compare Paris and Dubai, where the meeting is going to take place, we have one advantage, one disadvantage compared to Paris. The Advantage is many clean energy technologies, such as solar, such as wind, such as electric cars, heat pumps, they are much more cost-effective and their deployment is much higher compared to Paris. What makes me worried is the following. When we uh, were approaching Paris, there was a general positive uh, international atmosphere among the countries. Let's find a solution. There were political difficulties between the countries, but it was not as big as uh, today. Remember President Obama at that time uh, traveled to China to meet with the Chinese president to prepare the basis for a successful outcome in Paris. But when we come look at today, the political uh, fragmentation is uh, really a major, major hurdle to get a positive and appropriate outcome uh, from uh, Dubai. This is a major headache uh, for me to get an
0: uh, important and a significant outcome from Dubai. And so, given that lack of collaboration and the stakes, what needs to come out of, out of COP28 that would keep that, that 1.5 degree target in reach, but also... Let people understand that this is something that that is a fight that is is possible to win that we aren't doomed yeah. to be honest with you
1: uh, we we have all the data at our fingertips at TIE. this is one of the perhaps the most important treasure that IE has in addition to it is uh, wonderful uh, experts working here when we look at the data I want only four things coming from this COP28 meeting, which are, most of them are within reach that uh, countries can agree. The first one is I would like the uh, governments to agree renewable capacity triples between now and 2030. Energy efficiency improvement doubles between now and 2030. The... Oil and gas companies commit themselves to be a a partner with the others to address climate change, revise their strategies, and as a first step, agree to reduce their methane emissions substantially. And fourth, we get a signal from the governments that there will be a orderly decline of fossil fuels. So these are the areas that I would like to get those signals to the markets, to the governments, to the citizens around the world. This will give a big hope to uh, all of us. And this is uh, what IEA is uh,
0: working for. Do you think you'll get them?
1: I will do everything to get them. If I don't get them, I will uh, look at what happens after COP. We will continue to try to get them
0: uh, later. I'm glad to speak with you about this, Fatih Birol. Thank you very much. Thank you. Fatih Beral is Executive Director of the International Energy Agency. Later on this week, we'll have more from the COP28 Climate Conference. The CBC's Susan Ormiston is in the United Arab Emirates, and that host country, as we are saying, is known as a major oil producer, but it's also touting its investment in renewables. And she's headed to one of the biggest solar farms in the region, asking if that country that was built on oil wealth can really go green. You'll hear that coming up a little later on this week on the program.